When we speak about God ruling or the kingdom of God, there is a sense in which we mean the universal sovereign rule of God that has always been true, it is true, and it will always be true. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part five of his six-part series titled The Church in God's Eternal Plan. Read through the four gospel accounts and the letters and epistles of the New Testament, and you'll hear the phrase, Kingdom of Heaven or Kingdom of God. Well, today Tom will look at what that means and how the church fits into the kingdom and into God's eternal plan of redemption. And as you'll be reminded today, how the church relates to the kingdom is defined by its founding purpose and its commission, both internally and externally. Keep that in mind as we join Tom now on The Word Unleashed. We're studying how it is that the church fits into that great eternal plan of God. We understand, for example, that Abraham and his offspring, Israel, were a part of that eternal plan. We understand that the church is part of that eternal plan. We understand that something the Bible calls the kingdom is part of that eternal plan. And we understand that there is yet a future coming that is part of that plan as well. And so we're trying to ask and answer certain key questions about the relationship between these parts of that great eternal plan. Let me remind you of the ground we've covered. We have asked and answered the question, what is the relationship between Israel and the church? We made the point that there are a number of great similarities between them. Both contain the true people of God. Both Israel and the church are saved by the work of Christ. Both appropriate salvation that was accomplished by Christ in exactly the same way, and that is by faith alone. Both benefited from the work of the Spirit, and both were assigned the same responsibility to be witnesses in the world for God. Both as well are beneficiaries of the new covenant. Those are the similarities between Israel and the church. Now let me encourage you, by the way, this is like a thumbnail review of a couple of weeks of study, so if you miss this and you're trying to get up to speed, please go on the internet, listen, and sort of uh, catch up, because you may be lost in the brief review I'm doing tonight. I trust those of you who are here, it's only sort of reconfirming those things. So then what are the differences? What are the distinctions between Israel and the church. If they share those similarities, how are they different? And they are different. We, we saw in great detail. They're different, first of all, in their distinct identities. Israel and the church are not the same entity. And we looked at that uh, at length. Secondly, they're different in their distinct economies. That is, in the time frame in which God used them, they are distinct. They're different in their distinct promises. And specifically, the distinct promises to Israel can be summarized in a future restoration to the land and a leading role in an earthly kingdom. So those are the similarities and distinctions between Israel and the church. So now we see how Israel and the church fit into that great eternal plan. But there's one final question 
that we have to answer before we go on to study the specifics about the church as we know it from the organization of the church. Why is it we have elder rule as opposed to some other form of church government? What are elders and what are they to do? How is the church to function? What about the Lord's Supper and baptism? What about the primary roles the church is to play? We're going to look at those things together in coming weeks. But before we get to those specifics of how the church sort of functions day to day in the world, we need to make sure we understand how it fits into God's great eternal plan. So there's one last question we need to ask and answer. There is in the Bible a constant reference to the kingdom. And we need to ask, what is the relationship between the church and this kingdom? Robert Sosey writes, The concept of the kingdom looms large on the pages of Scripture. The kingdom of God is one of the grand themes, if not the theme, of Scripture. I'm not sure that I would agree it's the theme. I think the kingdom is simply the outworking of God's great redemptive plan, and I think that's really the theme of Scripture. But nevertheless, he's right. It dominates Let me just remind you of that. The kingdom dominates Old Testament prophecy. Just one example, in Daniel chapter 2, you remember Daniel sees, as he interprets the vision that Nebuchadnezzar has seen, he sees these four earthly kingdoms, and these four earthly kingdoms are destroyed, and the God of heaven sets up a kingdom in their place. And over and over again in Old Testament prophecy, you see this concept of a kingdom. It also permeates Jesus' teaching. If you look at Matthew 13, which we'll do in a little bit, you see a constant litany of parables about this kingdom, whatever it is. It summarizes the apostles' message. As you run through the book of Acts, and we'll look at these verses in a little bit, you'll see that over and again they are preaching the kingdom of God. And, of course, the kingdom story climaxes in Revelation when the kingdom is fully brought to its summation, particularly at the end of Revelation. And we'll look at that as well. But I want you to see that it tracks through the entire Scripture. So the question is, what exactly is this kingdom? What do we mean when we talk about the kingdom, or the Bible talks about the kingdom? If we're going to understand how the kingdom concept relates to the church, we must first understand what it is. Alan Cairns writes, there are few more complex themes in Scripture than that of the kingdom. I'm going to try to take the complex and make it as simple as I can for you tonight because it is a complex issue. But let's look first at a brief history of this kingdom as the Bible lays it out. It really begins in a sort of initiatory initiatory form in the kingdom of Israel and what's called the theocracy. It was based on the covenant made with Abraham. But essentially, the tabernacle and later the temple housed the Ark of the Covenant. And God makes it clear that there on the mercy seat between the cherubim in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, was His throne room. That was His throne from which He ruled as Israel's king. Moses was merely His spokesman. He was, in fact, the king of Israel. So in a sense, you see an initiatory form of the kingdom as God ruled His people Israel. Then later, a permanent form of that kingdom is promised to David and his descendants. In 2 Samuel 7.16, 
We read, your house, God says to David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. And then when Christ came, the angel announced and through, or I should say God announced through the angel as well as through uh, prophecies of those who were alive at the time that Christ himself would be the fulfillment. He would receive the kingdom and he would reign forever. You see that in Luke 1. When John the Baptist came along, he announced that the kingdom was imminent. Matthew 3, 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. And Jesus, at the outset of his ministry, in Matthew 4, 17, we read that from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. So you can see that when we trace the kingdom, it comes to a point of apex in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Now what is exactly its meaning? Normally when we speak of a kingdom, we mean the territory or the realm over which a king rules. So biblically, the kingdom is used to describe simply the rule of God. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we mean the rule of God. But the rule of God is used to describe two very distinct realities. One of those is the universal sovereign rule of God. We've talked a lot about this, and the Bible talks a lot about it. I think the verse that drives it home the clearest is Psalm 103:19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. When we speak about God ruling, or the kingdom of God, there is a sense in which we mean the universal sovereign rule of God that has always been true, it is true, and it will always be true. But we're also talking about another reality when we talk about the kingdom. We're talking about what theologians call the messianic or mediatorial. That word simply means through the mediator, of course, through Christ. The messianic, having to do with the Messiah, or through a mediator, rule of God. You can guess who that mediator is. It's God's rule through His Messiah, His Son, the mediator. And this is where the Bible spends most of its time, is developing this concept of a messianic rule or kingdom and Christ as the mediator ruling. It denotes the rule of God through His Son. Now, this rule, this messianic or mediatorial rule, has also been throughout Scripture. Let me just give you a few glimpses of it. Here are just a few examples, and I'm not going to really take time to turn to all of these. I might turn to one or two, but I just want you to get a glimpse. In Genesis 3.15, immediately we discover that there is a person, a conquering person who would come. There is the hint in Genesis 3.15, if not the full reality, that there is a conquering king who will come and deal with Satan. You come to Genesis 49 verse 10 and as the prophecies are made about the sons of Israel we read that the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes literally until he whose right it is comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples this is a a messianic prophecy this is a prophecy that there is a ruler coming who will rule, and he's going to come out of Judah, the tribe of Judah. You come to 2 Samuel, and just a moment ago we looked at that verse where, where David is promised that 
his kingdom would endure forever. So not only from Judah, but from the family of David in Judah, this ruler will come. And as, you, as the Old Testament goes on, it continues to narrow until we're sure exactly who this ruler is, or at least where he'll come from. You see it in Psalm 2. Turn to Psalm 2 just for a moment. God wants us to know that his Messiah, his Son, will rule. He has given his Son the right and authority to rule. And in Psalm 2, that reign is laid out. It talks about the nations and the kings trying to plot against, verse 2, his anointed, his Messiah, saying, let us cast their fetters apart, let us cast their cords from us. And God says in verse 6, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree to the Lord. He said to me, this is now Christ speaking, He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, the Father says to the Son, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And then he says, listen, you rulers of the earth, you better understand that I have declared my son will rule, and you better get in line. Verse 12, do homage to the son, literally kiss the son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see this kingdom concept continue to develop through the Psalms. Psalm 110, verse 1, David writes, and, and the, the apostles in the New Testament, in the book of Acts particularly, make a lot of this verse. The Lord, David says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, David is saying, in New Testament terms, the Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You are going to rule you see the same thing as I pointed out in Daniel chapter 2. In fact, turn to Daniel chapter 2 just for a moment. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. Remember, this is in the middle of this prophecy about this series of earthly kingdoms that are going to rule. Four earthly kingdoms. And verse 44 says, In the days of those kings, the final kingdom, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to these earthly kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. And who is the person who's going to do that? Daniel chapter 7 makes it clear. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is the one which will not be destroyed. Daniel says, I'll tell you who it is. It's the Son of Man. That makes very significant, by the way, that Jesus' favorite title for himself was what? The Son of Man. That wasn't just about his humanity. Certainly there was an implication of his humanity in there. He was claiming to be the fulfillment of this very prophecy. I am the king. When you come to Isaiah chapter 9, you're very familiar with that, a passage we quote often at Christmas time, where we hear that the prophet Isaiah 
turn to Isaiah chapter 9 just for a second. Isaiah chapter 9, the prophecy about the light that will come through Christ in the first few verses. And then you come to the heart of his prophecy, verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. And then we're told of his nature, he's wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the jealousy, the zeal of Yahweh will accomplish this. So you see this concept of the Messiah ruling. And of course in Micah we're told even where this ruler would come from. In the Old Testament, however, this messianic or mediatorial rule seems to be primarily, if you read the passages, it seems to be primarily about a physical, political kingdom. So when Jesus came, that's exactly what many of the Jews were expecting the Messiah to bring, was a political, physical kingdom. In Luke 17, 20, Jesus was questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. They expected it to come. They just expected it to come with a show of force and a political agenda. Even the apostles wondered when this was coming. They knew it was coming. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, after the resurrection of Christ, when they, they had come together, the disciples were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They understood the kingdom had these political connotations physical, political connotations. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs. He uses two different Greek words for time. One meaning the chronology, the chronos, and the other kairos, meaning the, the, the type of time, the, the season, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. You don't need to know that, he said. What became clear in the ministry of Jesus was that this kingdom, listen carefully, this kingdom was a lot more complex and complicated than most people thought when they read the Old Testament. They thought it was just going to be a political kingdom. When Messiah showed up, he'd ride into Jerusalem, he'd establish a political kingdom, and all would be well in Israel. That isn't how it played out. Now, when you come to the New Testament, we find two expressions encapsulating this concept of the kingdom. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. John the Baptist, Christ the gospel writers, all the apostles use these two phrases to refer to this kingdom. Now, some classic or traditional dispensationalists make these two phrases refer to two totally different realities. But in fact, they are synonymous. And in fact, these two expressions are used synonymously throughout Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what are called the synoptics. Sin meaning together, optic meaning to see, those that see together. They tell a lot of the same stories, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So they're called the synoptics. They see things together. And when you look and compare how they, um, how they present the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, you'll see that they're used synonymously. I'm not going to turn to all of these. You'll have to trust me. But all of these show that, in fact, these terms are used interchangeably. Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven about 50 times and the kingdom of God only five times. The rest of the New Testament uses the kingdom of God exclusively or similar expressions, the one exception being 2 Timothy 4.18, the, 
the heavenly kingdom. So why is it that Matthew refers constantly to the kingdom of heaven and the rest of the New Testament refers constantly to the kingdom of God? Why does Matthew prefer kingdom of heaven? Well, remember who Matthew is writing to. He's writing to Jewish people who have a predisposition against saying the divine name too often. They tend to replace the name of God with heaven. And so that's why Matthew prefers kingdom of heaven. That's the only reason. There's no other meaning that you can dig out of that difference. It's simply they're one and the same. They're, some, they're synonyms. But Matthew prefers kingdom of heaven because of his Jewish audience. They're more comfortable with not saying God's name too, too often. Now, in other words, we can say this, that there, was, there is only one kingdom. When you see kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, there's only one kingdom, but there are two distinct aspects of this messianic or mediatorial kingdom. Stay with me, okay? It'll become clear in just a minute, I promise. Two distinct aspects. There is a present aspect when Jesus is on earth, and there is a future aspect. Some theologians like to refer to this as the already, but not yet. There is an aspect of the kingdom that's here and now, and there's an aspect of the kingdom that is still to come. And you see this so clearly in the ministry and teaching of Jesus. Let's look at it together. First of all, the present aspect of Christ's kingdom. How do we know that there's some, something about the kingdom that's right here, right now? You and I are part of the kingdom. Well, the kingdom is connected in Scripture to Christ and His coming. There's no question about that. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, we're told that God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. If you're in Christ, you are in the kingdom. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus defended Himself. He says, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, the kingdom of God has come upon you because Jesus, in fact, did cast out demons by the Spirit of God. So then, at that time, there was a present aspect of the kingdom. In Luke 17, I read before about the Pharisees questioning him, when's the kingdom of God coming? He answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst right now. It's probably best to understand this as the kingdom is among you. It's present in me and in my work. John 18.36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. He told Pilate, listen, I have a kingdom. It's just not a political kingdom. It exists right here, right now. And if it were a political kingdom, my servants would be fighting to defend me. In Matthew 19, we find sort of a key text. I want you to turn there with me. Because here we have the present aspect of the kingdom really defined for us. What are we talking about when we say there's an aspect of the kingdom right now? Matthew 19. You remember how this account began in verse 16. Someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And Jesus absolutely nails this young man with his desperate need of salvation by 
showing him how far short he falls of God's law. The young man says, oh, you know, I've done all that. Jesus wants him to understand by another probing question that he has misunderstood the nature of the law. And in fact, he stands guilty before it. And so he tells them to sell all his possessions and give to the poor. His point was, you haven't kept the law at all. The essence of the law is what? To love God with all your heart and to love others as you love yourself. And this man loved instead his possessions. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his series, The Church in God's Eternal Plan. Tom will bring you the sixth and concluding part on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. And friend, to serve as an elder in a local church is a noble ambition, but it comes with a sobering responsibility. The existing church leadership must actively be seeking to identify, equip, and appoint elders to continue the work of ministry. Invite your pastor and other church leaders to join Tom Pennington February 18th in South Lake, Texas, as he is a featured speaker at this year's XL Ministries training conference, Becoming Biblical Elders. Visit thewordunleashed.org for more information and registration links to the conference. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.